Let's pray and then we'll get started. Father, we thank you for this evening. Lord, we thank you for um, the opportunity we have to uh, open up the Word of God. And especially this evening as we look at the book of Acts, Lord, how you worked, um, you empowered by your Holy Spirit men and women of God to carry out the message of salvation to the ends of the earth. And Lord, I thank you that you've made us a part of this plan, a part of your plan. And so God, I pray that we would uh, learn tonight about the church and we would be encouraged and motivated, that we would um, learn about how your plan is supposed to be put in place and what your servants should be like. And God, help us to carry out this work in our day today. We love you, Lord, and pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, welcome to our class, 21st Century Guide to the New Testament, and now this evening we're in the book of Acts. We've just covered the gospel records, and uh, I hope you enjoyed them. I always enjoy looking at the life of Jesus. I don't think you can really go wrong there. Um, And we understand that as we look at the Bible as a whole, we have the Old Testament, and and certainly some Christians, they do something that's wrong. They kind of set the Old Testament aside, and they assume that everything that happens in the Old Testament is fulfilled in the New, and therefore, you don't really need it anymore because really it's perfect in the New Testament. And that is an error because what's actually happening in the Old Testament is God is telling a story. And so from the very beginning, from Genesis chapter 1 to 11, we have the story of the fall. We have the problem presented. And then starting in Genesis chapter 12, all the way to the end of the story, God is telling the story of salvation. It is all salvation history. And so if you were to just start at the Gospels and think that you don't need anything in the Old Testament, what you're doing is you're starting at the climax of the story, but you're missing the whole introduction. You're missing the whole purpose. You're missing why this is happening. Okay, why is Jesus being sent to the Jews? Why is he a Messiah to the Jews? Why do they need salvation in the first place? What is this whole thing about? Why does Jesus do what he does and, and say what he says? And all of that we learn in the Old Testament. And so the Old Testament is absolutely crucial to our understanding of the Gospels, but then we understand we do get to the Gospels, and it's wonderful to get to the Gospels, because now it's like, this is, this is it. It's like Matthew chapter 1, bam, this, the, the Savior has come. All the genealogies point to this person, Jesus Christ, who is the fulfillment of all the Old Testament, and it, it's a wonderful thing. But you get through the Gospels, and then as Christians, what do we do? Do we say, okay, well, let's just flip back to Matthew and read those again. Let's just study over and over again the life of Jesus so we get to know him really well. And and certainly, that wouldn't be a bad thing. But we understand that as believers, all of what happens there, we understand the gospel presented in the gospels. Jesus died and rose again. But we also understand that we move on because there's now something for us to do. We understand that God's plan didn't just end when Jesus rose again. In fact, in one sense, that was the beginning. And the, the book of Acts is the most wonderful book because when we look at Paul's epistles, we get to see the doctrine of the church. We get to see some from practical correction and, and how you should live your Christian life. We get to see that teaching presented to us. But in the book of Acts, you have that teaching laid out. I mean, it happens. It, it, it's in example form. It is the difference between just being taught a lesson and having somebody live a lesson in front of you. And how much more powerful is it when at times we see people just demonstrate what it looks like to live the Christian life by their lives. We understand that, right? I mean, an example is so much more powerful than your words many times. And so in the book of Acts, we get to see the example of the early church. So, let us look at 
some of the important information. The author of the book was, once again, Dr. Luke. Luke is the one who wrote the gospel according to an educated plutocrat. He is the uh, educated, wealthy doctor, uh, a man of um, brilliance. As he wrote, you see marks of brilliance in his, his attention to detail, uh, just how he organized things, how he was so careful with everything he said. Um, his, uh, in, as far as his literary style goes, he was a brilliant author. He used many different words and many different descriptions. And so Luke is, once again, our author, the beloved physician. Um, we saw last time, as we looked at the book of Luke, that Luke was also a good man. I mean, he wasn't just gifted. He wasn't just a man of God. He was a man that was willing to go behind the scenes. He was a traveling companion of Paul. He, he worked with him, and as Paul was beaten and persecuted for his faith, Luke was always there to help him, always there to stitch up his wounds and to, and to bandage him up and, and to make sure he can continue to go on. And so, so often in the book of Acts, we find that Luke is there present, an eyewitness to the events happening. And he's there, but he never gives himself any credit. You go through the whole book, and, and he says we, but he never says his own name. He never points to himself. And it's a wonderful thing that you have a man of God who's used by God in such a great way, and yet the whole time he's behind the scenes. And that's Luke. The date and the place of the book of Acts, most likely Luke wrote A.D. 62 to 63 from Rome. And what would have been happening at this time is Paul as we're going through actually Acts, we're almost right at this period where Paul is on trial. And he's right now just about to stand trial before Felix. He has about three or four more trials before he eventually gets shipped to Rome. And when he goes to Rome, he will most likely stay in Rome for the rest of his life. It's possible that he gets out for a couple of years and is allowed to travel around. But basically, he goes to Rome as a prisoner and he dies there. And so he has just gone to Rome, and, and the book of Acts ends very abruptly. And so the reason we can say it, it was probably written A.D. 62 to 63 is because it's just like Luke just stops. I mean, he doesn't, he doesn't give a conclusion, he doesn't sum it all up, he doesn't explain what he was doing, he just stops writing. And the only reason for him to stop writing is because that's as far as the story had gone. And so he probably wrote during, writes during that time, uh, it would be a few more years, about five more years before Paul would finally be killed by Nero, but uh, as far as we know, that's, that, that's when Luke wrote. The purpose of the book. And I was trying to figure out how to, to, to say this purpose succinctly, because, I mean, Acts, 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 as many different things. And so we'll see that in a moment. But just very succinctly, the purpose is to record the cooperative efforts of the Holy Spirit and the disciples to preach the word and build the church of Christ. And so what is Acts about? Why did Luke sit down and write it? He wrote it because he wanted to record, and with, with historical accuracy, very carefully, objectively, record the efforts of the Holy Spirit and the disciples in cooperation. At no point do you see the Holy Spirit coming down and doing everything by himself. Okay? And certainly we understand God has the ability to do that because he did do that at times throughout the Bible. But in the book of Acts, what we see is the Holy Spirit entering in the disciples and empowering to them to do the work that Christ has given them. And so basically what happens here is Jesus says, hey disciples, this is your task. 
Your task is to take the gospel of Jesus Christ, to take the, the story of my life, death, and resurrection, and bring it to a lost and dying world. And then he says, ready, set, go. And the disciples are standing there and going, there is absolutely no way we could do this. And they're absolutely right. I mean, they're unworthy to do it. They're un, unprepared, un, ill-equipped. They, they don't have the ability to do what Jesus told them to do. And so you have this command, and then you have this group of people that are so entirely unable to do what the command told them to do. And that's where you have the Holy Spirit come in. Because the Holy Spirit comes into the lives of these people, literally for the first time in history, into people, not just on them, but in them, to empower them and guide them and help them to do the work that Jesus called them to do. And we've said this before, but I want to say it again. If you think that you're not equipped, that you are not able, that you're not worthy to present the gospel to people, to do the work of Christ, the answer is, A, you are entirely right. You're not. By yourself, you're not. But B, every single person who the Holy Spirit works through is equipped and is ready and can do it. And that, that's great news for us. And it was great news for the disciples. And so that is what the purpose is. It's the cooperative efforts of the Holy Spirit and the disciples to preach the Word, always centered on the Word of God. So often they went back to the Old Testament to show why they were doing and why they were saying what they were saying, to prove it. So it's to preach the Word and to build the Church of Christ. That is the book of Acts. So, Acts acts in four ways. First of all, it acts as a bridge. It acts as a bridge between the Gospels and the Epistles. Can you imagine if you were to read the Gospels and the Gospels end at, at the furthest place with the ascension of Jesus Christ? And so he's died, he's resurrected, he's rose, he risen again, he's been on the earth for 40 days, and now he's back in heaven. And then all of a sudden you open up the book of Romans. Okay? Let's say Acts is not present. So you open up the book of Romans and you go, who are the Romans? I mean, how did they get involved in this? I just saw the story of Jesus and, and I saw he, how he was in Palestine and he, and he was telling people about who he is and what he's come for, and he's healing, and he's performing miracles. And I saw him die and rose again, but I don't understand what a church is. You know, we, we barely get a glimpse in, Acts chapter eight, or in Matthew chapter 18 of the church, and so we don't really understand the concept of a church and how all that works. We don't know why the Romans know about Jesus. We, we have no concept of where this has come in, how it's all happening. And Acts is just indispensable to, to allow us to see this is how it all works together. Here's the bridge. Okay? You got from the ascension to the Pentecost and the coming of the Holy Spirit into people, to those people going out into all the world, into their communities, and even further into Samaria, and then eventually into the uttermost parts of the earth to bring this gospel that we talked about here, to bring it to the whole world, to start churches, to make disciples. And so now the book of Acts ends and we get to Rome and we say, yeah, it makes sense because we've gone over that bridge. And so it is incredibly important as a bridge. The second thing is, Acts is a victory lap. It acts as a victory lap. Jesus dies, and at his death, he says, it is finished. And so the work of salvation is complete. Nothing more to be added. It's finished. And then he rises again. And he rises again, having victory over the grave. And at this point, we would say that the work of salvation, it's complete victory is won, but what is, gonna, what is about to happen is, is what I'm calling a victory lap. It is, hey, this has happened, it's wonderful, it's great, but nobody knows about it yet. 
And so let's take this good news of this victory that's been done and just parade it around the world for everybody to see, for everybody to hear. I mean, that is what we're doing as believers, right? Our job is just to parade the news that Jesus has come and died and risen again and that he can provide salvation for all. I mean, we get to a bad place if we think that it's our job to just go in and, and, and to change everybody and to convince them and to, to have the very best arguments to persuade them. Yeah, it's okay to do some of those things. It's okay to know why you believe what you believe. In fact, you should. But the primary message of the book of Acts is Jesus is alive. Very simple. Jesus is alive. Everybody should know. Jesus is alive. He's, he's risen again. He can provide salvation for you. And so our primary job is just to witness to that truth. And that's what they do. It's a victory lap. Now that the battle is done, the task is to tell the world that Jesus is alive. So Acts starts, and it acts as a bridge. It is a victory lap. And it acts as a starting line. Okay, so you've got the victory lap, but we also understand that this is just the start. Jesus has come and he's done all of this. It's complete but this is the very beginning of the work for the disciples. He spent those three years, and during those three years, the disciples weren't any help. I mean, they, they, they almost always were contradicting Christ or going against him or, or making trouble for him. Very rarely did they do anything to help him. And this is the time when the disciples step up and they start their journey. Okay? It's the starting line for them. And so... When we look at the book of Acts, we don't, we don't see it as a comprehensive history of the first 30 years of, of the church. It's not. It's not comprehensive. Luke does not make any attempt at all to give us all the details about the church. In fact, he gives us, honestly, very few. We, we see the life of Peter for a while, and we switch to the life of Paul for a while. And so we see two out of the hundred and... Well, only 120 were in the upper room, but there's only one of them, so... Peter, and then eventually Paul is added. He wasn't even there in the upper room. And so we, we see out of all the disciples that are in the world, only two of them were seeing their stories. Now granted, they're two fairly important guys, but the other apostles, they lived their lives for Christ. There were many, many disciples that gave their lives for Christ, uh, that, that lived and, and brought the gospel all over the world. And so this is just a, a starting line for a few of these people. It's not meant to say, okay, listen, Read my book and you'll understand what happened for all of church history. What's supposed to happen is that you read the, these 30 years, the, the very few details that he gave, and you say, I see how it's supposed to happen. Okay, let's go. It's my turn to take the baton. It's the starting line. But since that starting line, that baton of taking the gospel of the nations has been passed from church to church to church to church to us, and it's our job to pass it to the next generation. And so that's just the starting line. But our job is still as ongoing as it ever has been. As important as it ever has been. So Acts is a bridge, it's a victory lap, it's a starting line. And finally, it is a live action manual. And as I said before, it's exciting that we can look at this book and, and not just hear how it's supposed to happen and read the words of Paul in the direction of Paul, as he writes the epistles, but here we get to actually see it happen. I mean, here's, we get to watch the movie and say, this is what it means to start a church and to live for Christ and to sacrifice it all and to, to love him and to all of the, the teachings that, that Paul says, this is what you ought to do. We see them happening. And not only that, we see them failing. 
We, we see believers not just succeed, we see them fail at times. We see the church encounter problems. We see them encounter racism. We see them in, in, encounter fraud. We see them encounter many different problems. And so it, it's, it's nice to be able to look at this live action manual and say, hey, this is how the church should deal with some of these things. And this is how the church shouldn't deal with some of these things. Hey, this is how believers ought to act, and that, that's not how believers should act. It's just a manual. So, I hope you understand that as we look at the book of Acts, it is an unbelievably important book. And, and you probably know the fact that I've been going through it, and I have those 700 pages of outline. I love the book of Acts. Okay? But I, I believe we ought to all love the book of Acts. Because it is a manual for, for all of us. It's the starting line for all of us. It, it gives us all direction, motivation. Um, it, it just, ready, set, go. And that's what the book of Acts does. Okay? So the audience of the book of Acts was Theophilus and everyone else. Specifically in Acts chapter 1, we'll read the first few verses there. He's writing to Theophilus. He says, The former treaties have I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began to both do and to teach until the day in which he was taken up after that he, through the Holy Ghost, had given commandments unto the apostles whom he had chosen, to whom also he showed himself alive after his passion by many infallible proofs, being seen of them forty days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. And this is how Luke begins his writing. And what he does in those first three verses is he summarizes his entire previous letter. And that was very customary to do back then, that, that if you were going to write a, a follow-up letter to something, you would summarize what you've already written, and then you would explain in the next few verses what you're planning to do here. And so he summarizes, that's, that's what I, I wrote about Jesus' life, and now I'm going to tell you what I'm going to write about now. And I would say the best summary for what, I, what is about to come is in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. This is the words of Christ. He says, But ye shall receive power after the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost part of the earth. So Luke says, This is what I wrote about the first time, the Gospel of Luke. This is what I'm going to tell you about now. This is the Holy Spirit coming. This is him empowering his disciples to be a witness for Christ over the entire earth. And that is what the book of Acts is about. The audience is Theophilus. The outline, as we've just seen, we just read, it's found in, in that verse, Acts chapter 1, verse 8. The gospel goes to Jerusalem in the first seven chapters. The gospel goes from Jerusalem because of persecution. It's sent to Judea and Samaria in Acts chapter 8 to 12. And then finally, the gospel goes from, to the uttermost part of the earth from Acts chapter 13 to Acts chapter 28. And so it begins with Peter preaching in Jerusalem the very place that Christianity could have been disproved, Peter begins preaching his message that Jesus is alive, he's risen again, the tomb is empty. And it ends with Paul preaching in Rome. And, and, and what an exciting success story. Right? Against all odds. I mean, the Jews hated Christianity. They were always battling it. The Romans, they didn't like Christianity either. And so they, they were battling the government, they were battling their, their religious brothers, they were battling everything the whole way, and yet throughout all of these batter, battles, this, it's an amazing success story that it's preached and people respond in Jerusalem, and then persecution becomes so great that they have to leave, but then people respond in Judea, in Samaria, and, and in Antioch, and, and then in 
Galatia and in Asia and in Europe and all the way to Rome. It just keeps going and going and going and spreading. The gospel is succeeding. So it's, a, it's an exciting story. In the book of Acts, we have 28 chapters and 24 sermons. And every one of those sermons mentions the resurrection. Key verse of the book of Acts, Acts chapter 1, verse 8. We've already read it, but let's read it again, because this is a good one. But you shall receive power. After that, the Holy Ghost has come upon you. And you shall be witnesses unto me, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the uttermost part of the earth. The Great Commission. And then Jesus does that and he ascends into heaven and now he is seated at the right hand of the Father making intercession for us and he has sent the Holy Spirit to help us in that job. And So what is the application for us? As we look at the book of Acts, what do we say, okay, what do I do? Well, I mean, obviously there are many. Um, if there weren't, we would have been having a lot of trouble over the past three years, right? There are many, but I want to give you three very quickly. First of all, our mission is the making of disciples. You and I have this mission that, Paul, that, that Jesus gives to the church there in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. It now carries on to us to make disciples. And that requires evangelism. And so if we are doing what we ought to be doing as believers, then evangelism is a part of our lives. Now you might say, listen, I don't know that I have the gift of evangelism. I don't know that I have that special ability that's given to a select few, and so I'm not sure that's my job. I'm probably best served as a believer if I just, you know, try and raise nice kids. Right? That's a good thing to do. Or I'll just, I'll just stay at home and pray. That's a very good thing to do. Okay? Or whatever you believe your gift is, I'm going to show people mercy. I, I'm going to just teach at church. I, I, I'm going to, you know organize and administer and help things run and organize work days and I'm just a really hard servant or you know you can take your spiritual gift I'm just going to do that the great commission was given to the church and it requires evangelism and it's not just one guy that goes and does that okay this is something that is given to everybody and and it's very clear because everybody in Acts chapter Two, that was in the upper room in Acts chapter 1, is now on the streets speaking in tongues and preaching the gospel. Now it's true that Peter stands up louder than all of them and he preaches this, this message that everybody listens to and hears, but prior to that, everybody was out there preaching the gospel. And, I mean, maybe Peter had the gift of evangelism, but they all had the command to go evangelize. And so they, they did. Eric? The commission is given... Absolutely. It is. It is. And, and there are people that will respond to an evangelist, and there are some that won't. But maybe those people will respond to a coworker that they see that loves Christ and has character and, and works hard and loves them and lives out their faith in front of them. And they're not coming to church, but they are going to live, live beside you every day. And so certainly the gospel is for the gospel commission to go take that gospel it's for all of us. And it's to reach all kinds of people. It requires evangelism. There's a, a great number of verses there. Um, just to give you a couple, I'll, I'll read Acts chapter 2.32. This Jesus hath God raised up, whereof we are witnesses. We're witnesses to Jesus. 
8.25, And they, when they had testified and preached the word of the Lord, 8.35, Philip opened his mouth and began at the same scripture to preach unto him Jesus. 8.40, Philip um, preached in all the cities till he came to Caesarea. 10.42, And he commanded us to preach unto the people and to testify that it is he which was ordained of God to make the judge of the quick of the dead. And, and so you see all of those verses there. You could look up more. But what we see happening over and over again is all sorts of people testifying and preaching and witnessing to the, to the message of the gospel. That is the plan for the church. And so our mission is the making of disciples. And that requires, first of all, evangelism. But it also requires continued discipleship. Continued discipleship. The command in Scripture, when Jesus is talking to people, he rarely says, believe on me. He does say that sometimes, and we are commanded to believe on him, but that is not how Jesus presents it. Most of the time, I think it's about 30 times in the Gospels, he presents it this way, follow me. Follow me. And so it is not just a one-time conversion experience where from this point on, you do whatever you want to. And I've got to tell you, I'm guilty when, we were, when I was at Bible College in Faithway, I was standing in front of the, the teenagers there that had come out to this youth group that I tried to start. Um, and we were playing basketball. These were rough kids. I would stand in front of them and I would say, listen, all you've got to do is believe the gospel. And they would say, yeah, but um, you know, I, I have these things. No, 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 don't worry about all those other things. You don't have to stop doing those things. You just have to trust in the gospel. You just have to believe on Jesus. That's all that's important. Okay? That's a terrible message. Because it's not the message of the Scripture. Now, certainly we understand that, that our faith, that it's belief that, that saves us. Christ saves those who believe. But he expects those who believe to follow him. And, and the whole idea is, if you believe in him, you understand who he is, then there would be absolutely no reason not to follow the God of heaven. And if you, if you think that you can just say some prayer and, and say you believe but then not follow, that means you just never believed. And so the message is to follow, and so it requires discipleship. We often think of Paul's missionary journeys as as evangelistic efforts. And they were, especially the first one. But you get to the second journey, and the first half of the second journey is spent not evangelizing, but confirming and establishing the churches, encouraging the churches, encouraging the believers to keep loving Christ and serving Him. All of Paul's letters, none of them are evangelistic. All of his letters are to, to make disciples stronger disciples. Okay, the third journey, most of the entire journey, was to go out and just, hey, confirm the churches, make sure the churches are doing well, make sure the elders are set up like they should, should be, make sure the structure of the church is right, make sure people are growing and learning in the Word of God like they're supposed to. And so discipleship is of the utmost importance. We often think that the, the Great Commission is a commission to evangelize, but it is a commission to make disciples. It requires evangelism. It also requires continued teaching and preaching and help and encouragement and, and just being alongside people. And that is the purpose of the church, to edify one another. It's just along with the discipleship, I think sometimes um, we fail to realize what that entails for us. It's really life by life. It's mm-hmm. me finding someone else for my life into yep. uh, and to help them grow in grace and that's not happening in a church right? Yep. I think we could say that it's not going to church that Jesus called the disciples in Mark to be with him yep. and being with him allowed them to stand over their life it's the same for all the believers we have to find people that are, are young and afraid for just saved and they should be with us to know how to live their Christian life that's the same yep.
Yeah, 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 absolutely. If you take that example of, of how, how Jesus did it, he spent three years day and night with this group of 12 guys before they were ready to even start their, their little mission that he had for them, right? Three years day and night. And the way we structure it is come to church once or twice a week, um, maybe sit in a discipleship class for a seven-week-long discipleship class. I mean, you know, does it, you not get the difference between what the church often does and what the pattern that Jesus set was? Here's the pattern of the early church. Acts chapter 2, verse 42 says, And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and in fellowship and in breaking of bread and in prayers. Okay? They were there together steadfastly all the time, daily. If you go on and read the rest of that, it, it, it's happening on a daily basis. They're just together. They're living out their Christian life together. And you have older believers encouraging and strengthening the younger believers. That's discipleship. Acts chapter 5, verse 42 says, Daily in the temple and in every house, they cease not to teach and to preach Jesus Christ. Now, they may, they may have been in the temple preaching about Christ and, and preaching that people need to come to Christ. Now, I'm sure that in the temple they were also teaching about how to live as a believer, but when they were going house to house, I mean, they were most likely there going to houses of believers teaching and preaching in Christ. And so that was their call. That's the pattern of the church. In, we also see it's the priority of Paul. Pattern of the church and priority of Paul is to make disciples. And so... Our first point, our first thing that we have to understand is that our mission is the making of disciples. The second thing we need to understand is that our power comes from the Holy Spirit. Our power comes from the Holy Spirit. I went through the book of Acts very briefly here just to see what the Holy Spirit does. Okay, Because we know that this is the Holy, all of it is the Holy Spirit working through the disciples of Christ to point people to Jesus. But what does he do? Well, in Acts chapter 1, verse 2, he illuminates... God's will. Luke writes, until the day in which he was taken up, speaking of Jesus, after that he, through the Holy Ghost, had given commandments unto the apostles whom he had chosen. And so Jesus wanted to give the commandments to the church unto what they should do, and it says he did it through the Holy Ghost. Right from the beginning, he was using the Holy Ghost to illuminate God's will. He, the Holy Spirit empowers for service. The Holy Spirit confirms truth. The Holy Spirit emboldens. The Holy Spirit convicts the lost. I mean, all of this is specifically happening in the book of Acts. This is what the Holy Spirit's doing. And you say, how did they do this impossible mission? How did they take the gospel to a, a world that was just so bent against Christ? How did people even ever come to know Christ? Well, it's because the Holy Spirit was empowering, confirming truth convicting the lost, emboldening the disciples, illuminating God's will to them, confirming the salvation in other people. The Holy Spirit was doing these things. See, they were just like the tools. The Holy Spirit did all the work. And that is what we're supposed to be. The Holy Spirit separated people for service. The Holy Spirit at times closed doors of service. So Paul said, I want to go here. And he said, no, don't go there. Okay, then I'll go up here. No, don't go up there. Okay, I want you to go here. So he, he's directing, he's guiding, he's even closing doors. The Holy Spirit administered the gifts. The gifts of the Holy Spirit that is given to all of his church. He's involved in the administration of those gifts. The Holy Spirit warned and prepared Paul as he was going to Jerusalem, getting ready to suffer persecution, getting ready to be put in chains. The Holy Spirit said, Paul, listen, this is what's coming. Okay, I want you to know, I want you to be ready for it. It's coming. He prepared him. And the Holy Spirit equipped leaders of the churches. 
And so when we look at those functions, just very briefly, skimming over the book of Acts, saying, okay, what did the Holy Spirit do? We, we see the Holy Spirit involved in every part of the ministry of the church. Every part of discipleship, every part of evangelism, every part of everything that, that we've been given to do, the Holy Spirit is doing it along with us. That's good news for us. So our job is discipleship, our power is in the Holy Spirit, and our greatest weapon is prayer. Our greatest weapon is prayer. And it's very easy to forget how often prayer is used by the church. And it's very easy to forget to pray in our own lives. We get so involved with doing, 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 serving, 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 right? We, we get this attitude that, okay, this is what I've been given to do, and so I'm just going to do it. And we forget that we need the Holy Spirit's power, we need God to work through us, that all of it is in vain if the Holy Spirit doesn't work, and so we must pray. Spurgeon said that a praying person is, is m- more powerful than a hundred good preachers. Okay? Spurgeon knew what it was to be a good preacher because praying taps into the power of God. It's of the utmost importance. We cannot do what we've been called to do. I was reading um, Jeremiah and I came across an interesting verse in Jeremiah where God tells Jeremiah not to pray for the people because he is going to judge the people and so he doesn't want Jeremiah praying for the people because he doesn't want to have to answer Jeremiah's prayer. You get that? He, I mean, God's plan is to judge the people. And he says, Jeremiah, don't even pray for them. Okay? Because if you pray for them, I might have to answer your prayer. So just don't pray for them. It's the power of prayer. And we see it happening all throughout. They're praying in the upper room. They're praying as they choose leadership. They're praying when they face persecution. This is a great passage. I want to read this prayer to you. Okay? This was what their prayers looked like. Because sometimes we say, okay, we should pray. And you say, okay, dear Lord, I don't know what I'm supposed to pray about. Um, dear Lord, I'd really like a new car. Um, Lord, I have a little pain in my finger, and just it'd be nice if you'd help that pain to go away a little bit. And um, I think somebody else has a pain in their toe, so just help with that pain too. You know what I mean? It's like, this is, the, God, this is all the things that you can do to make my life more comfortable and, and to, to just give me more happiness today. This is their prayer. Acts chapter 4, verse 24. When they heard that, what they just heard is that the Sanhedrin had warned the apostles that if they continue to preach and to teach about Christ, then they're going to be disciplined. They're going to be thrown in jail. They're going to be killed. Okay? That's what's coming if you continue to do what God has told you to do. This is what they say. They lifted up their voice to God with one accord, unified together, and said, Lord... Thou art God which made heaven and earth and sea and all that in them is, who by the mouth of thy servant David has said, Why did the heathen rage and the people imagine vain things? And so he said, God, you're, you're the one that's in charge of all these things, and you're the one through David that said that people would do these things. You, you've said that people would be turned against you, that they would imagine vain things. The kings of the earth stood up, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ, for of a truth against thy holy child Jesus, whom thou hast anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate with the Gentiles and the people of Israel were gathered together for to do whatsoever thy hand and thy counsel has determined before to be done. And so he says everybody in the earth was gathered together against, against your son, against Christ. 
And that was all part of your plan. And what they're doing is they're saying, Lord, we're in the midst of this trial, in the midst of this suffering, in the midst of this difficulty. And God, we remember that it's been difficult the whole time. That your plan all the way along in the life of Jesus was to have everybody against him. Okay? They were doing what your hand had anointed to be done. And now, Lord, behold their threatenings. Okay, that's what you've done in the past, Lord. And so we kind of, we're putting ourselves in the right situation to, to go through this suffering. Behold their threatenings and grant in thy servants that with boldness they may speak thy word. Right? So it's, it's not, okay, Lord, we understand that people have suffered in the past, that Jesus suffered and that everybody was against him and, and we know that that was your will then. But Lord, now we have this threatenings and so Lord, please make it so that those Sanhedrin, um, they stop being so mean. You know, just, just, just protect all of the disciples from any type of suffering that they ever might endure. That is not what they say. We expect that to, to be what they'd say because that is probably what we would say. But that's not what they say. They say, so in the midst of that, allow your servants to be bold. Let us be bold in this suffering. Let us not quiet down. Let us get up and preach Christ boldly because that is the message the world needs to hear. And even if it means we're going to suffer, let us be bold. By stretching forth thine hand to heal that, and that signs and wonders may be done by the name of the holy child Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place was shaken where they were assembled together and they were all filled with the Holy Ghost and they spake the word of God with boldness. What an answer to prayer. When the place that you're praying in shakes and everybody's filled with the Holy Ghost and you're preaching with boldness, you know God was pleased with your prayer. Right? And so we should pray more along these lines. All right, so they, they prayed. Um, they prayed. Um, the apostles in Acts chapter 6, verse 4 saw praying and the preaching of the word as their primary task. They prayed prior to anointing any position. Um, they, Peter prayed prior to resurrecting Tabitha. Uh, they prayed prior to receiving God's direction. Uh, when Peter was imprisoned, he was taken in prison, they prayed. In fact, that's, a, a, again, a, a funny story where they're praying and they're still praying and he's been already, he's, his, their prayers have already been answered and they continue to pray and they won't even open the door for Peter because they're so busy praying for Peter. It's a great story in Acts chapter 12. You should read that again. Um, so they, just... just I mean, over and over again, we find them praying. Do you know why they were praying? Because they knew they needed the power of God. And do you know why they were praying? Because they knew that their job was to make disciples and they couldn't do it alone. And all of these things work together. I mean, this is the job, this is, you need the Holy Spirit, and prayer is the, me- the method by which we get the Holy Spirit. And so, like, let's just, I, I mean... Maybe sometimes we quit because we don't pray and so we think that it's impossible to do what we're doing because we just don't have the Holy Spirit like we ought to. Okay? And, and so the message for us, the application for us, as we look at the book of Acts, hey, let's do it like they did because it worked. Right? I mean, it was incredible what was accomplished. In 30 short years, the gospel went around most of the known world and it was because the people of God saw their job, saw they were ill-equipped and unable to do it and so they said, Holy Spirit, help us. Over and over again, Holy Spirit, help us. God, give us what we need. And they prayed.